0: Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Reya. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues.
1: This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Reya. It's business, but it's personal. Listening Colour.
0: Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musician shaping jazz, soul and blues. My brilliant change-making guest today is Joe Foster, co-founder of the global sports brand Reebok. Grandson of the shoemaker, J.W. Foster, the inventor of the spiked running shoe, Joe and his brother, Jeff, were born into the family business. But after two years away from home on national service, the brothers returned in 1955 to find the business struggling and rooted in the past. Joe and Jeff decided to create their own brand, focusing on the growing athletics market – And after taking evening shoemaking courses, they launched Mercury Sports Footwear, as it was then called, from a, quote, ramshackle Bolton factory in 1958. Renamed Reebok, the company grew into a $4 billion business, overtaking Nike and Adidas in the 1980s to become the number one US, yes, you heard that right, US footwear brand. With a legacy of product innovation, including the creation of the first athletic shoe for women. A British success story that did, as I think one of the adverts used to say something else, did rather well over there, and it's actually done rather well everywhere. Joe, it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to meet you, the man behind, as I said, one of our most famous exports.
2: Thank you for the invitation and the introduction. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here, it really is, and I'm
0: looking forward to this. I've never sort of done anything with Jazz FM, but uh, (laughs) it's going to be very interesting. There's a first for everything. I've met many founders over more than a decade, and most people say, oh, the business was founded in 1988 or 2000 or even 2020, whatever it is. I think you might be the first person I've met where the business was founded in the 1950s, 1958 to be precise. Just take me back there for a moment. What was life like as a young person, just come back from national service, thinking about moving away from what was an established family business, big name in athletics, spike Shoes, Chariots of Fire and all that, and going off and doing your own thing. Tell me about what an entrepreneur was thinking about right then.
2: Well, you know, we came back, as you explained, we came back to a failing <laughs> company. We didn't know that before we went off to do two years of national service. We were part of a family. Mother does everything, makes the bed, makes the meals. You know, she's there. You go away for two years, though. And, uh, you know, your eyes are open. All of a sudden, you, you have to look after yourself. You, you, you think, you know, I've got to do it. Then you have to do it. Jeff went to Germany and he saw Adidas and Puma and what they were doing as far as the footwear scene was concerned. So when we came back and we came back to the family, we, we came back with a little more sort of uh, seriousness, should we say, a little bit more, oh, yeah, we've really got to think about business now. What are we going to do in the future uh, instead of just sort of work for the family business? And uh, unfortunately, my father and uncle, they had inherited the business from uh, my grandfather, Grandmother was all right while she was there. She seemed to keep them together. But she died. When we were away in National Service, she, she had actually died. And so when we came back, they were feuding. They were fighting with each other. Literally, on occasion, we had to drag them apart. And you're thinking, just a minute, this is not going to do any good for the business. We're going nowhere. And uh, you, you've heard of Addie Dassler and uh, Rudy Dassler. They fought. They were exactly like my father and uncle. But they had the good sense, at least Rudy really probably had the good sense to get out of the business and go and set up Puma. Unfortunately, father and uncle, they just kept fighting. And whatever we did, we said, look, you know, we've got to change. We had no salesmen. We've got to get salesmen out there. We've got to do some marketing. Marketing, what's that? That was a new word, you know, marketing. Yeah, we've got to do something. We've got to really build the business. Otherwise, it's going to die. My father, all he said to me is, look, Joe, when I'm gone and your uncle's gone, this business will be yours. You can do what you want with it. And I said, well, Dad, to begin with, we don't want you to go. But this business will be dead long before you are. Didn't make any difference. So we had to leave. And we left because we wanted a future. We could see there was a future in the business and there's competition out there. But
0: we left because we wanted to grow a business. Uh, but Joe, at that point, how, how old were you in 1958? i 23. 23-year-old young, young person, yeah. yes. young person, comes back from National Service, has family business over there, and obviously, you know, I come from family business. You see it at the kitchen table, you see it in the factory, sit, you see it. You mm. get the sense of what's going on, but how did you know that you needed to fix the sales? How did you know about marketing? You're a young fellow. I'm just interested that the things you talk about now as if they were just, they were natural to you, people listening will go, well, how did he, how did he even know where to start? How did he even know what the language was? Because, again, in the 50s, there was no press of a button internet. There wasn't an amazing access to what was going on globally. And you talked about the the, the Dassler Brothers and literally yeah. opening across the street and all that. Exactly. But to find that stuff out, though, in the 1950s, not an easy task.
2: I, I guess, really, that because my father and uncle were just on opposite sides, as it were, my uncle, he did the hand-sewn Premier Deluxe shoes, and my father was on a machine-sewn shoe. They ran two different businesses... And uh, what we found out is, you know, when you, whatever it is, you read in magazines, you're seeing things in, you know, you go to sports shops and you're seeing Adidas appearing in in these shops and we're thinking, why are we not there? Why is Foster not there? What are Foster's not doing? We have a letterhead from the 1920s and my grandfather was supplying 95 Premier, well, it wasn't Premier then, but all, all the teams in, in the UK. And I know that the only one I couldn't find on there was Tottenham Hotspur. Apart from that, Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Everton, you name it—they were supplying them with training shoes and football boots—and I didn't know that at the time. We only found that because as Reebok grew, we decided to dig back, and we had time; we could put people to it, and we dug back into the history. So, my father and uncle must have known that. What happened, you know? And you say, "Well, how did we realize?" I think we realized the fact that the. We were young, we were adventurous. We need to do things instead of being a passive business, because that's what Foster did, had become a passive business, just waiting for our orders to come in. Just last year, we got so many orders. This year, we'll get some. <clears throat> but those orders were coming later <laughs> and later in the year because somebody else was fulfilling the early order situation. So we knew father and uncle were fighting, the business was going nowhere. It was instinctive, but it was sort of a
0: reasonable calculation. But this like, was yeah, going out of business. Sounded like the prognosis was pretty clear. It makes sense that a 23-year-old doesn't know what he doesn't know, and you crack on. I'm really interested. There's a there's a moment when Nike, uh, when Reebok, not Nike or Adidas, when Reebok pops <laughs> in the 80s, and the, you know we know the story that went from three million dollars to 30 million to 90 million to 900 million. Suddenly, it's it, it goes crazy. Yeah. I would call that the sort of 20-year-plus overnight success. Absolutely, What In those 20 years from inception, what was going on in the business, just in terms of the, the two or three big things? Were you just grafting? Were you just trying to make this thing work using all your instincts that you had? And then why, for you, did it suddenly pop? Well, yeah, it's
2: like anything. You could start off a business and give it any name you want, whatever name. That business, you've got to sell that business. That name has got to mean something. You've got to make it happen. And so, yes, you graft in the early days. And uh, we grafted. And, and of course, I'd seen what fosters weren't doing. We needed a represents. We needed to get on the road. So uh, I tried to get freelance reps to carry the product. That was okay to an extent. But, you know, again... A rep goes in and he has four lines. So he, he obviously brings out his first, his best, and his second. And, of course, who knew Reebok? So Reebok came out last. So we were doing okay. And one day, one of these reps said, oh, I'm giving it up now, Joe. I'm going to open a sports shop. Uh, you know, and, I, and I thought, I was called Bill Birchall. I said, Bill. I said, well, I'll probably go out on the road and try a bit myself. So because he was uh, stopping doing what he was doing, he had a couple of brands that, uh, he said, well, why don't you take these brands on? So I did. One was selling dart flights, which which was absolutely incredible. It's never been so easy in my life to sell anything. You walk in the door, oh, darts, yes, and you come out with about a two hundred pound order for just for dart flights in those <laughs> days. But anyway, I would go in with Reebok, and uh, I probably found out what the other guys have found out. I walk in and see the guy and say, "I'm Reebok," and he'd look at me quizzically and say, sort of, "Who? Uh, Reebok? Oh, what do you do?" Nice shoes and show him everything, brilliant. The one thing, I'm, I'm not a good salesman, but I knew everything about our shoes, so he couldn't pick up anything and sort of catch and show them the shoes. And he you know, more than once they would look up on the stock and say, look, I've got Adidas and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And having had that question put to me two or three times, I decided to stop being a rep. I decided that. I'm trying to sell to a man who really doesn't need me. It's only when people come in the shop and ask for Reebok, mm. that he will need me. So it was at that point we decided, well, we knew a lot of athletes, and we knew, we went to, went to races and sell to the back of the car, and you get 100 athletes running past, and I'm thinking, these are my customers. Mm. How do I get at these customers? Well, luckily, the three A's in those days, the Amateur Athletic Association, produced a handbook, and the handbook had about 200, 300 clubs all affiliated to the three A's. And in that, they had the name and address of every secretary of every club. Well, that became a no-brainer. That was, that was out go the letters. So out went 300 letters. And look, we're going to give you 15% discount if you want to buy our shoes. If anybody in the club wants to become an agent, he can have 15% and so on. I got 100 agents from the first letter. Brilliant. I'm now selling. Yeah. A second letter, just those people who didn't seem to respond first time. And they got another 50. So I'm growing agents. And then the telephone rings and these retailers, they're on the phone. I believe you're selling direct to our local athletics club. Uh, yes. Well, look, look, you stop selling and we'll, we'll stock your shoes. And I thought about this and I, thought, I said, no, I'm sorry. We're not going to do that. You can have the shoes at wholesale price. I'm only giving these guys 15% and I'm sure you give them 15% anyway if they come in as a club, but we will advertise you and uh, you can have the business, but we're not
0: stopping. So basically what you've just described, Joe, is channel distribution strategy, right? That's what people would call it in the parlance now. You, You totally identified that and you said that this is what we're going to do. How did that translate into sales? How quickly did you see an uplift in what happened to the brand? We did see a quick uplift, but the best thing that
2: happened to us is that we became, number one, we became associated as the athletic shoe in the UK. It gave us credibility. We started to box above our weight. People used us as, yeah, well, we, they're the ones. You know, you buy those shoes. So, yes, we did We did get sort of an increase in sales. But, you know, in, in the UK, football, football is king. And as far as volume is concerned... That's it, but we couldn't get into football, mainly because we just set our factory up for two hundred and fifty pounds and some other thing. We didn't have a lot of money, and football by that time was owned by Adidas. Adidas had come in, and you know they owned that area. And to sort of compete against them, we were not big enough already. So the thing, the thing for me was okay, we'll grow all we can grow in athletics, and then I had my eye on America because. Every college, every university has a coach. And a coach is God over there. And you actually go to a lot of those universities on a scholarship, a sports scholarship. So 350 million people, and the available spending money is so much bigger than the UK. In fact, we we did a bit of a study later on, and we found out... call America 100 the nearest to them was Germany at 35 then Japan came in at 30 and the UK came in at 20 so
0: it was five times the amount of business that I was doing in the UK I could do in America so and that was my vision that was the next place and we're going to come back in just a few minutes to find out how Joe Foster took America by storm which is exactly what they did you're listening to Jazz Shapers with me Elliot Moss and Joe will be back very shortly he's the co-founder of Reebok
1: Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mish Mishkondorea It's business, but it's personal.
0: You can enjoy all our former Business Shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. So if you've got a smart speaker, just ask it to play Jazz Shapers and there you'll be greeted with a taster of our recent shows. But back to today's eminent guest, Joe Foster, co-founder of the global sports brand Reebok. Again, it's very hard in a short period of time, Joe, to traverse all these years. I want to come to America in a moment. But you talked about the fact that the, the Dassler brothers squabbled. You talked about the fact that your dad and your uncle were, were squabbling then. For the two of you, you and your brother, how did you decide what you both focused on during the time that you worked together? And were there squabbles?
2: Well, you know, we never, never had a crossword. It's, it's a him. I think two things. Jeff probably thought I was mm, the one who could do more talking than uh, the two of us. <laughs> and get on with talking, but really he loved being in the factory. He just loved making shoes and doing all the work that he had to do to uh, take it from a drawing into uh, an actual product. He, he just loved that. So he said to me, Joe, he said, uh, I'll look after the factory and you do everything else. Oh, okay, everything else. And so I did everything else.
0: <laughs> and in the everything else, when when were you at your happiest, Joe? When was When was Joe Foster going, this is what I'm born to do, this is the fun bit? I guess that came about
2: when I started traveling and meeting people and seeing how really we could get the brand to
0: grow. Is that where so, you get your energy from when, you, when you're doing that stuff? We mentioned America. Yes. So when you first start traveling to America and you're trying to build up the Reebok presence, was that for you, as you look back, do you go, that was actually a really great moment? But
2: well, that was a challenge. You know, I love the challenge. Sitting in the office doing things. Um, I did a lot of designing. In fact, the one thing I designed was was a shoe that got us a five star shoe, and that's we're going back now fifty six years, and that is still a major seller for Reebok, the Roll star, and I, and I drew that. So I, I like doing the drawing as well. I, I like drawing the the shoes out. Okay. But uh, as I said, that's that's all, which is not this one, but
0: we we have a lot of them. Jo, and, Joe's got special Reebok on <laughs> only only the only pair in the world to yeah. have J W C your initials on one and eighteen. 95. 95 on the other, which is the... the, the That was the day my grandfather, the year my grandfather, at 15, he actually invented his uh, spike running shoe. And Am I right in saying that Harold Abrahams and Eric Little won gold in the 1928 Paris Olympics wearing J.W. Foster running shoes? You're correct. That's good. I'm pleased that's good, because that's one of my favourite films ever. I cry quite a lot at (laughs) films, and that is one that, that totally gets me on every level absolutely every level yeah. so so traveling designing and like as you said you do everything else was there stuff that you didn't like doing uh, not really i thought it was an adventure the only thing i can say to jeff and i could blame him for is that he allowed me to make the mistakes <laughs> but mistakes are important right again people we live in a very perfectionist culture and it sounds to me like that wouldn't wash with you you'd be like well just crack on got to do stuff well yeah it's like problems mistakes and problems are the same thing you learn a lesson you should learn a
2: lesson. And if you don't learn a lesson, then you're not seeing the, the, the problem. You're not really seeing what to do. Because it's like people say, um, entrepreneur, what's an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur, to a lot of people, they, they're sort of going now to MBA classes and they're being taught how to do this, 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 and this. But they've been taught history. An entrepreneur takes risks, Just something different. That's an entrepreneur. It's, it's not somebody you can learn it out of a book. You can learn what other people did. But you yourself have to be willing to take a risk. You have to be willing to do that, something different. And you've got to be excited about it. And you've got to be in love with it. Mm. And you've got to have fun. Because if you're not having
0: fun, the chances of success are very limited. America, just tell me the story briefly, how you broke into it. What were the two or three things that happened that enabled you to crack it? (laughs) As you mentioned earlier, overnight, 11 years. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's that bit.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, you know... This is one of the times, and I, I'm saying to the uh, Jeff and the families, look, we need to get into America. Oh, we can't do that. It's too expensive. But I'm reading a magazine, and this magazine, I think it's called Eurosport. And in anyway, it, the government were advertising, and they wanted us to export. They were willing, at that time, to pay for a stand at the NSJ show, the National Sporting Good of America, in Chicago. They were willing to pay for the stand, pay for the return, airfare, and half of the expenses, hotel expenses. No more rejections. <laughs> you can go. So off I went, 1968,
0: Chicago, February. Huh, don't go. Cold. I've been very, <laughs> been? very cold. Yes. Very, very cold. Very cold. Colder than I'd ever Extraordinarily experienced. Extraordinarily cold, yes. <laughs> it's true.
2: Yeah, but uh, four days there, and the Americans come up to stand and say, wow, love your shoes, great stuff, yeah. Where would we get them from? And I'm saying England. And they're saying, "Was well, New England? <laughs> no, 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 not, not New England, England. Across the water, you know. Oh, near London? Yeah, near London. <laughs> you get a message. The thing is, I needed a distributor, <laughs> and uh, this is 1968. And when did I get a distributor?
0: 1979. Ah, okay. And then, about two, three years later, Jane Fonda, aerobics, focus on that, and off you go. Suddenly, you're away to the races. Absolutely. I made it sound easy. Of course, it wasn't. It was that. It was that bit in between, and a whole series of decisions. <laughs> I'm sure that you. When well, we. Make. I had at least six failed attempts at getting a distributor.
2: Good guys, have a go, they'd take the shoes and whatever, but we're trying to push into the market. Our lucky break came, I mean, we had a lot of luck, but running, running became a big category in America. So from being nothing during the 70s, running became probably the biggest category uh, that the Americans were actually competing in and whatever. And a, a magazine started off as a single page by 1975, it was a 50-page, full-colour, and that was Runner's World. Yeah, yeah. Runner's World, fantastic. And Bob Anderson was really full of it. And the thing is with Bob Anderson, he was so full of it, he decided he'd tell everybody which is the number one shoe to buy. Okay, you've got 350 million Americans, 10% were probably running, 35 million. And, you know, you tell an American this is the number one shoe, well, at least 10% of those, 3.5 million, wanted that shoe. Phil Knight, Nike. He was the number one shoe. Yeah. yeah. But he's bringing these in from Japan. Tiger, Onitsuka. Now, they were actually making for him at that time. And uh, could he get the shoes he wanted? No. They couldn't turn up the wick. They couldn't turn mm-hmm. on that production. So the idea that Bob Anderson had, he could, he could put a number one shoe out there, failed. He tried it twice, but it failed. He changed it then to star ratings. And five stars, that would be your top shoe. Fantastic. And there could be four or five shoes five-star, and they go four-star, three-star, two-star. I knew we could make a five-star shoe. I knew that. The number one, that's a gamble. A five-star shoe, I knew we could make it. And I designed Aztec. And there I am, 1970. Well, we tested it out in 1978 at the Commonwealth Games. In fact, what we tested out was our gold range. Our gold range was a spike called Inca, um, a road racing shoe called Midas, and our training shoe, Aztec. We got a shed load of medals. Fun. In 1979, February, I'm back in America with my shoe, which I'm going to say this is a five-star shoe. Okay, first one on the stand was Kmart. You heard of Kmart? Big retailers in America. And he wanted 25,000 pairs. Wow. Well, <laughs> our factory, that's six months' work for our little factory in, in Bolton. <clears throat> well, uh, yeah, okay. But one of my friends, he just set up the sports division for Barter. Barter in those days were the number one shoe Manufacturers globally. They were big. He said, We'll help. Fantastic. But came out and said, But we want a better price. Mm, right. And I knew what that meant. That meant we had to go to the Far East, we had to go to South Korea, and we could get them from South Korea at half the price or less than half the price. But I already had a contact. I knew that if we actually got a five-star shoe, we would have to up our game manufacturing-wise. We'd
0: have to do more shoes and probably better price. So I already had a contact in South Korea. But all these foundations are being laid, and a decade later, around the late 1980s, you're now... The Business is in now the billions of value. Then there's a big corporate event, and I want to, when we come the other side of the traffic and travel, I want to find out about what happened in the late 1980s when you moved from a management role into an ambassadorial role, and basically why we're sitting here right now and why you've written the book called Shoemaker. Why now? I want to come back to all of that. Don't go anywhere because Joe Foster's my business shaper. He's the co-founder of Reebok. We've also got some Sam Cook for you as well. That's all come up in just a moment
1: here on Jazz FM. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Joe is my
0: business shaper just for a few moments, it's co-founder of Reebok. You may have heard of them. They were a $4 billion business when, when Joe was around. they have uh, still around just over a billion. They've just been bought uh, recently again from Adidas, the authentic brands group, ABG, and Back then, in 1989, you leave the business. You you talked a lot about the challenges, and you were in that business, you know, for what is that, uh, forty? It's about forty. 30 Thirty-one years. 31 think, years. Yeah. Can't do my maths. Thirty-one yeah. years which is a fair amount of time. Um, yes. Here we are in 2022. You've now written a book, which I think you started in 2014, or you, you
2: <laughs> something like something that. Something like yeah. that,
0: right? The books take yeah. a long time. Everyone says you always. Everyone's got a book in them, right? right. Yeah. But it just but it, they don't then say and it takes a while to write yeah, it. But anyway, that's the, that's the small print. What made you write the book? Because, you know, you live your life. You've lived an extraordinary life. You're, you've done all these, these things. You've put a business on the map that just wasn't, and it didn't just happen in a couple of years with a bit of a left and a right. It was a bit more than that, yeah? yeah. What made you want to capture that in in this book you've written?
2: Well, I, I wasn't
0: too particularly interested. A lot of people said, why don't you write your book, Joe? And I said, "Ah, oh, well, maybe I'll get
2: around right to it one of these days. But I'm, I'm sort of lying on uh, in the sun. And I'm reading, and you like, now we have computers. Now we have Wikipedia. Now we have Google. And I'm reading Google, and I'm reading Wikipedia. And it's saying, this is how Reebok started. And uh, here's a photograph of Joe Foster, the founder of uh, Reebok. No. Don't know who the photograph was. I have no idea. And and how, how the company started, two or three different ideas they had. Well, Foster's just changed its name from Re- Foster's to Reebok. No, no, no. <laughs> Didn't. So this got me a bit sort of, got to put this right. Even t- when you try to write a Google and say you got it wrong, they have got to verify this. You can't do it. If somebody else writes to them, yeah, you know maybe they'll do something. So I
0: thought, well, maybe time for that book. <laughs> but you don't strike me as someone who's who um, gets sour grapes. I mean, you know, we, in all the time, and we've only just met, but you've been talking about, you know, 40, 50 years of your life it feels like your disposition is, uh, as my grammar would say, "Come see, si, come sa, si. you know, it is what it is, you get <laughs> right. on with it. I mean, yep. you, f- you feel like that kind of person. It doesn't sound like you're angry. Is it just more like, well, I've got the time and I just want to do this? Was it another challenge for, for you?
2: Well, I think the challenge came as soon as... You know, and I thought, we should really try and put this straight. And, but just uh, like that, just a simple... I'll just know, to, yeah. yeah, we should try and get this straight because it didn't happen like that. Mm. And, you know, if you leave rumours out there and just wishy-washy sort of explanations... And I thought, no. And then when when I'm thinking about it more, I'm thinking, well, just a minute, we we sort of have a, a legacy here. We have generations of family that, you know, my grandfather started this in 1895. And who knows J.W. Foster? Nobody. And if Reebok hadn't become a successful company, that would have died. That history would have gone totally. And and it, it wasn't out there, even though it wasn't out there. So Here's a chance, a chance now to... Really get the uh, you know, the Foster family, mm. whether it's heritage, whatever it is, but tell the story.
0: And once it's there it in black and white, that's it. And Joe, are you are you more proud of your dad and your grandpa, and the way what they did, than you are of your own achievements? Well, certainly my granddad, my grandfather, he I mean, he must have been a
2: genius because he was there with influences long before that word came out and people know about it. Yeah, he he was giving his shoes to guy called Alf Shrub in nineteen oh four, who brought three world records in one event, and and he was given them as, as you said to, uh, uh, well, Lord Burley, Harold Abrahams, and Eric Little. Eric Little, yeah. You know, he was given to the guys who were winning races, and that's influencing. Mm. So that was brilliant. I, my father and uncle, disappointing, really <laughs> disappointing because, yeah, as, as I said, ninety six football clubs were wearing Foster's shoes and boots and why why nobody sort of latched onto that and even to today i have no idea how they
0: missed the opportunity yeah and missed it let me ask you one one last thing before we ask your song choice the affinity you have with rebrock you're wearing them you literally Mm. you created them you live in them you talk about them you go trips around the world putting there in front of in front of the book as you talk about the book Right. right that's what i was hearing earlier from you what does it feel like? Is it a child? Is it a family member? What is Reebok to you today? Well, Reebok, it does become a family. That, that's, I mean, a lot of people do
2: have talked about this. How do you go on with your domestic family and, and Reebok? How do you sort of work it together? And unfortunately, it's not always workable because you fall in love with your family, which is your business. Reebok is my family. And either the family comes along with Reebok or we have problems. And uh, fortunately, Reebok became very good. We got off to Monte Carlo to the uh,
0: events we used to put on there. and So that, that drew the family in. The family were quite happy to do those things. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to have been your son. That sounds quite nice. I've never been to Monte Carlo, especially <laughs> not to Formula One, but I'd like that. But, but so it's still, and is it still family today? It's family today, yes. I mean,
2: you just can't let go. You know, you're in love with things, you're just in love with things. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I don't need to own it. You know, that's that was never the uh, the ambition. The ambition was always it's like Joe Foster. Who the hell's Joe Foster? Nobody knows Joe Foster, but they all Reebok, and that was the mission. The mission was let's grow Reebok. So everything was built to build Reebok. Uh, Reebok will go on long after me, and that is good. You know, if Reebok had died after twenty years, thirty years, that would have been sad. But uh, fortunately, we got it to that level. That level now we yeah, it's forever. In fact, I was reading something in, uh, I think it was on Google Alerts or something like that, that uh, it's just sort of now all the A-listers in, in uh, America
0: are wearing the Club C. It's just something that is absolutely timeless. It's been brilliant talking to you. Long may it continue, the timelessness, I mean. And we, we're we not <laughs> timeless, you know. 100 <laughs> hundreds from now, Reebok will be going, but neither of us will be around to see it. Uh, it's fantastic having some, some time to find out who Joe Foster is. I think people will know who Joe Foster is after this round of sharing the book around the world and talking about the uh, J.W. Foster legacy as well. Just before I let you disappear into the sunset, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Well,
2: for me, it's Sing, 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 as we know. Benny Goodman, uh, when, when you're young, you pick up on something, just with like rebook in a way. You pick up on something and you don't let that music go. So for me, it was Benny Goodman and uh, yeah, I could hear
0: it anytime and all the time. So yes, Sing, Sing, Sing the brilliantly uplifting Benny Goodman with Sing, 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 the song choice of my business shape stage Joe Foster. We're not there, he said, when he was young and wondered where his Reebok product product was. And he said, we just need to do things in order to get it there. I love the way he said that. I love a challenge, he said. He's a man who likes a challenge. Mistakes and problems are the same thing, aren't they? You're just going to learn a lesson each time. And finally, that lovely thought about him not being able to let go of something he loved. In other words... His business called Reebok. Fantastic stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend.
1: Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.
0: We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. Or head over to mishkon.com forward slash Jazz Shapers.